Four Corners podcast. Hello and welcome everybody to the Four Corners podcast with your host Klisman Marathi. We have a very interesting guest uh, today. His name is Savas Zavori. He is the chief economist of Tosca Fund Asset Management, a fund that manages over four billion pounds under management, so a pretty big number. And Sav has been in the industry for a long time and he has some very interesting views on some very interesting topics that we'll be discussing today, including the rise of China, the decline of the US dollar and the identity crisis of the Eurozone. Uh, so the first question I have for you, Sav, is what is your perspective on the psychology of chief investment officers and of the finance community in general? Because it seems to me as if a lot of the time when I hear perspectives on the news and in the papers, they seem very status quo. There doesn't seem to be a lot of unique analysis on, on different topics, especially more complex topics, which are more far away, such as China, their ambitions and their, and their operations, and even things which are more close to home. How would you describe this sense of status quo mentality in the finance world and why or what gives an investor or a chief investment officer or a chief economist the edge when it comes time to understanding world affairs? Well, let's, let's um, go from description to quantifiable numbers. This is my 30th year, three zero, uh, working in commercial finance. Of that 30 year period, I've spent half the time on the sell side, working for investment banks, the Dutch, the Germans, the French, the Americans. The other half I've spent working on the buy side. 13 years now at Tosca Fund, where I work in many ways with my friends, the colleagues and friends. The, the word that, that, that really captures your question really is consensus. It's very cozy to be part of the consensus, not to, uh, not to break away and say, I'm going to talk about something that isn't groupthink because we are risk averse in our careers mm. and we, we don't want to, to say anything that is controversial. Even if we believe that, that the consensus is wrong, we are fearful of stepping away from it. Mm. And that is, in, in terms of economics, if you're, if you're a student of economics, you recognize that as a, as a stubborn disequilibrium. So even though the correct answer is somewhere here. The, the market will stubbornly believe in this hmm. because nobody wants to be the first to move away because they may be wrong. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, uh, something happens, a crack happens, and everyone moves to the right position in a stampede. And, and everyone can claim that it was a market shock. And that is incredibly uh, frustrating. So let's think about 2008. 2008 wasn't sudden or shocking. You could see the GFC happening in slow motion, but nobody wanted to talk about it because there was also another thing that really creates this, this stubborn disequilibrium, which is, which is um, effectively self-interest. If, you, if you're thinking about the period from 2002, three to four, to five to six, the big investment banks, the big rating agencies, they didn't want to talk about the fundamental weakness of mortgage-backed securities or CDOs or CDSs. They didn't want to talk about the problem with, with the, the pigs of, of the Eurozone because they were making fees. And nobody wants to basically kill the golden goose. Mm -hmm. now, if you can see this thing happening and you're the, you're the lone voice, you're the maverick. 
So when 208 struck and we had the collapse of the subprime mortgage market, we saw the collapse of Lehman and Bear Stearns and we saw the collapse of Washington Mutual and so on. That wasn't something that you couldn't predict. It was because there was so much of a, of a vested interest, echo chamber. The, the journalism that we have today, when I began in finance 30 years ago, you didn't have rolling news. You didn't have CNBC or Bloomberg. Bloomberg didn't True. exist in yeah. 91. Microsoft didn't actually exist as a, as a, as a working tool on your, um, on your desk. You turn your machine on in 91 and you had a black screen. If you wanted to write um, code, you wrote it from a base language, which, me which meant you had to understand what you were doing. Now, you simply press a button and you get anything you want from Bloomberg. Yeah. Diagnostics. So what you have is effectively amateurs operating heavy machinery. That's dangerous. Uh, the, reason I, the, the reason I began 30 years ago in this industry was simple enough. I had no ambition to work in commercial finance. I was loving studying econometrics and mathematical economics. I was loving teaching it. And I was teaching um, uh, forecasting at a university. And one of my students asked me where I'd practiced what I was preaching. And rather embarrassingly, I said, nowhere. I've never actually taken this into, into, into practical territory. And I realized that the respect that my students had, had developed for me over the course of the semester, the term, vaporized. So I promised myself I'd leave academia for two, three years, spend a few years working for an investment bank, and then return. That was 30 years ago. And you never because turned back you from then. In this industry, it's infectious. Yeah, I can imagine. For sure, because I think it forces you to use all parts of your brain to see how things are connected and how things can develop. And it really needs someone who has the stamina to do that over a long period of time. Do you think though, those who get into the industry at the beginning, especially students who, who may be dazzled by the glitz and glam of the big investment banks and who recruit them to come on board, very quickly, a lot of the times they get some of them at least get disenfranchised because they weren't expecting it to be as high pressured and as um, as cutthroat as it is. From the time you started to now, what do you think? Do you see any trends in the best time to get into the investment world? Do you think you need some experience in life in, in, in a fundamental business to really truly understand the impacts of finance and the impacts of trade onto a specific sector? as opposed to coming in straight as a student, you know, a baby-faced first student with only theory in your mind, without any real practice of the real world? No, let's, let's, let's think about this in practical clinical terms. You speak about students coming into, into the industry. How on earth can someone who studied modern languages or history or something even as seemingly appropriate as engineering or physics come into an industry which effectively has requires disciplines and knowledge beyond modern languages. Mm -hmm. the, the, what I've found, if anything in 30 years, is a number of uh, recruits who, actually, who have studied to a master's economics is, is dwindling. There's a fashion now to recruit financial engineers because of the quants and big data and algorithms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is not NASA. This is not a 
a, a subject which is about physics and laboratories, and it's not a clinic. The you have, you have to be as good a macroeconomist, labor economist, monetary economist, psychologist, behavioral psychologist. These so many of the the entrants don't have the 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 key disciplines educationally that are needed in this industry. Imagine if medicine just for a second draw a parallel between finance and medicine. Yeah. Would you would you would you allow yourself to be operated upon by a surgeon who's never studied biology? Definitely not. Of course not. And yet we have that. And you might say, well, the surely you can learn on the job. Would you want to be operated upon by somebody who just walked into a hospital and spent three years watching a surgeon? Of course not. You mm. want someone who has been grounded from seventeen in biology, who has watched and learned from an expert from 21 and who mm -hmm. isn't really practicing medicine um, surgery until they're in their late 20s early 30s so what you have in finance is we're thrown in or you're thrown in very soon after entering a big investment bank you're made to, to specialize far too soon yeah imagine a heart surgeon a heart surgeon doesn't study heart surgery to begin with they study medicine and they understand human anatomy in its entirety. And then they begin to specialize after maybe 10 years. In commercial finance, you don't have that, that route to becoming yeah. an expert. Yeah. And that hasn't improved. Yeah. The, this industry is only as good as the, the market participants. And the sad truth is that the quality of recruits has deteriorated, not improved. In my in my thirty years, really, that must have a big impact. Then, obviously, on the clients who trust the investment world to manage their money. When it comes time to understanding very complex and increasingly interconnected issues like the rise of China, maybe, or the fall of other parts of the world, and how that impacts markets, how that impacts industry. Naturally, in this podcast, we speak to those who have the most experience, like yourself. So when you look at the, the landscape of how China has risen over the decades, you have, you, have a, you have a point of view that says that its rise is unstoppable and the West can't really do anything about it. Am I right in saying that in the first place? And could you just put more meat on the bone with that assumption and what that really means for even Western financial institutions and asset managers and their level of development and growth, especially as China grows and becomes a, a very dominant power in the future? Well, that's a very good question. Let's think about China. Mm -hmm. China didn't exist in any meaningful way before 2002. So it's 19 years old. It's a teenager still because it joined the, the World Trade Organization on the, um, I think it was the 11th of December 2001. So really, yeah. it only uh, came to the fore in the early months of 2002 its currency was pegged to the dollar until 2005 since then its currency has broadly speaking been strengthening but has still been held back by beijing because beijing is still doing what we saw with west germany after world war ii in japan which is trying to remain competitive the issue is this is that the people's bank of china the safe which is effectively the sovereign wealth fund of china has learned all the mistakes that Japan performed when it was the, the, the Asian superpower. 
economically. I've been watching China for 19 years, waiting for it to make a mistake, waiting for Beijing to make a, a macroeconomic, microeconomic mistake. And I'm still waiting. It dealt with the 208 crisis. The 208 crisis has been described as the, the GFC, which mm -hmm. some um, call the, the, the great financial crisis. It wasn't, it wasn't global. It was mm -hmm. purely North Atlantic. It, it was a crisis that struck the US, a crisis that struck Europe, and a crisis that struck the North Atlantic that the, the Eastern Hemisphere had to deal with. It wasn't causing the Eastern Hemisphere. If you go back to 1997 with the Asian currency crisis, that was an Eastern phenomenon. Yeah. But the GFC was entirely North Atlantic, and Beijing dealt with that perfectly. And it's dealing with COVID perfectly. What we're seeing is the, the Federal Reserve in the US doing what it's traditionally done, which is deal with problems by printing money. Mm -hmm. In the past, it's not been a, a, a particular challenge because the world has no choice but to, to use the dollar as a numeraire for commodity prices, use the dollar as its store of wealth, use the dollar as where it um, saves. That, that train has gone, left the station. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the epicenter of the global economy move eastwards. If you were to ask me my favorite English-speaking economy, it wouldn't necessarily be the UK, although the UK is fundamentally very strong in my view. Australia and Canada, because they have engagement with China. They have natural resources, they have the rule of law. They are as close to being the perfect emerging economy because they're emerging in as much as they have wonderful demographics. Now, what is my point? My point is that these, you, you use the word complicated. There's nothing complicated about uh, what we do if you understand the, the fundamentals. And it's yeah. the failure to understand fundamentals that, that I find frustrating because universities, the universities that are producing the, 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 um, the recruits into finance are giving them degrees in subjects that aren't relevant. Now, how would that change? I was hoping that the 208 crisis would, would see a complete uh, revaluation of who should be allowed into the cockpit. Think about, again, I used medicine a moment ago. You, if someone walked into a cockpit of an airplane without any understanding of how the thing worked, they'd be arrested. Yeah. And yet you're seeing young men and women coming into finance, being given responsibilities that they're not fit for purpose hmm. for. Airplanes, uh, that, airplanes crash yeah. 99.999% of the time because of pilot error. Commercial banking, commercial finance is fundamentally robust. What brings down institutions is pilot error. Yeah. And we still allow untrained pilots into the cockpits of finance. And that is, for me, an incredible frustration. I can imagine it would be, especially when you're when you as a market participant are expecting the same level of, of responsibility, insight and lateral thinking as you're providing yourself to be reflected in the market, but that's not always the case. Taking it back to China, what would you say to the critics who say that, um, you know, naturally, politically, China is very different to the global West. Their ambitions um, have been hidden for a long time in what they actually want to do, and that is being a, a dominant power or the dominant power in the world to overtake the USA militarily, uh, economically, um, 
with industry as well. And a lot of information coming out of China is very unreliable, whether it's their GDP figures, their, 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 their development figures, their business growth figures, or even when they pr produce um, uh, reverse mergers into U.S. markets. You know, a lot of uh, Western and U.S. Uh, US uh, accounting can't be applied to China because they, uh, the Chinese government don't allow you know, full audits of their accounts by Western institutions, which makes it very... Can I, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah. I, I saw the, the evolution of national accounts coming from Greece, from Italy, mm -hmm. from Ireland, from Spain, from Iceland. Accounts that were given uh, AAA ratings from S&P and Moody's and, and, and um, Fitch. We now know they were fiction. So Europe was producing the same sovereign accounting uh, 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 pretense that you're claiming comes from China. Mm -hmm. I've seen corporate failure after corporate failure after corporate failure in North America and Europe. Mm -hmm. Where, was, was Enron Chinese? Was Global Crossing Chinese? Was Wirecard Chinese? I could go on, which I continue. So this, this perception that everything from China is fiction and fraud is absurd. It's a, as for its ambitions militarily, China has one ambition, and that's monetary, not military. It can, it can take over the world monetarily. So why waste sending soldiers in? Let's not forget that since 2002, China has earned in excess of $5 trillion of trade surpluses. Mm -hmm. And of those $5 trillion, it still has over $3 trillion in reserve. It spent $2 trillion. It has acquired Africa monetarily. It has acquired South America monetarily. It has acquired Central Asia monetarily. It's acquired the UK monetarily. Yeah. No need to send soldiers. Yeah. Uh, is... What contribution has China made or Beijing made in the war in Syria in any meaningful way? Or Yemen? None. Or Iraq? Yeah. So uh, this, this, this sort of this the barraging of Beijing with the claim that it has, it has um, ambitions that are nefarious is not consistent with the facts. And all I deal with the facts rather than speculation. There is what's happening with China is that because China has an engagement with Iran, anyone who doesn't like Iran is throwing brickbats at China. So it's like, know, know the narrative. Our job in finance is to be clinical, not to be duped. If anyone thinks that China has some sort of uh, insidious role in the world, my only response is, if China isn't growing as strong as it is, there is no other part of the world that can provide global economic momentum. Europe is rubbish. North America is, or the US is flawed. India is still poorly managed. In fact, mm -hmm. I often hear, why can't China be more like India and democratic? Where's the democracy in India? And as for, as for China's ambitions, those who are old enough, as I am, to remember the, the Tiananmen Square riots, the yeah. near collapse of the Chinese Communist Party. The reason the Chinese Communist Party has one ambition, which is sustained, robust growth, is because Beijing knows that the, the best pacifier to your population is wealth creation. China has a middle class which is growing as quickly 
as the population of Europe every year. Faster, in fact. There are 500, there, there are half a billion Europeans. There are half a billion middle-class Chinese. And that number's growing. So there's a, Europeans like me and you, or those of us who live in, in the Western Hemisphere, I've got to appreciate that our day has passed. The uh, the role of global leader is now east is is in the Eastern Hemisphere, mm -hmm. and so, it's we're not the master, we're the servant of the East. What would you say to those though who say that okay, let's say China is becoming and as we can see financially at least a very influential and soon to be dominant power in terms of growth rates and production rates as related to the US. What does that mean tangibly for things like the rule of law? What does that mean for things like um, the idea of, again, these topics which I'm about to mention may play in the minds of investors to a certain extent, but this is more for a political audience or a military audience for the issues in relation to their human, human rights record. And should we be doing business with a country that has stated many things which aren't facts in their country and how about the military and the uh, intelligence heads of the u.s government who have shown time and time again in their own reports that china's ambitions being number one comes with responsibility of being that number one and china will not provide the same level as global leadership if you like to the world as the us has done naturally coming from a us mouth then they'll obviously try to promote the virtues of the us um, as opposed to the uh, to the vices of china is there anything in the minds of investors that um, pay attention to these to these assertions by the defense military intelligence communities of america and the global west and the very fact that with the rise of China, we see in terms of even le leg um, legislation, whether it be uh, the FIRMA piece of legislation in the US where it limits Chinese inbound investment for industries which are deemed national security interests, or even within the UK, there's a bill that's going through the UK parliaments now, which has the right to do even more due, due diligence checks on investments, inbound investments from China, targeting China specifically. These aren't done for any other reason um, in the mind of the US because China's ambitions are nefarious and they have an intention to be number one and with that power comes a lot of negativity. What would you say to that? You're, 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 I'd say that that is, a, that is a narrative which is coming th in, th through the prism of Washington. Yeah. Okay. I've, got, I've, got no, I've got no agenda. I don't care about the, the nature of the individual countries. I, I, look, I look at them indiscriminately. Mm -hmm. if, if you're asking me between the US and China, who has been a global destabilizer over the last 20 years. I don't see the fingerprints of China in Libya or in Syria or Iraq or Afghanistan. I don't see their fingerprints the way I can see the, 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 the fingerprints of Washington. I don't see the Chinese renditioning or waterboarding any more than Washington has, has been proven to, to have done. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the US is very closely linked to Saudi Arabia, whose human rights record, it, as we speak today, is being challenged. The US is linked to the UAE, whose human rights record is today being challenged, finally, after long being ignored. Yeah. Again, I don't like hypocrisy. The, 
it, you can accuse China of many things justifiably, but if you're going to if you're going to cast the same uh, measurement over China that you're doing, then you should use. If you're going to if you're going to basically measure China in one way, measure the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the U.A.E., Pakistan. Look at the in Poland. In Poland, as we speak, a country in the European Union. If you're if you're transgender or lesbian, if you're young and you want an abortion, your 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 liberties are being curtailed. Okay, in Hungary, more and more European nations are moving towards nationalist agendas. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this idea that somehow China is some you, I, I said it first and you repeated it nefarious. There's nothing there's nothing overly nefarious about in China than there is elsewhere. We That's countries right. are self-interested. Naturally. And my, my final point on this subject, on this question is this, is that if the UK, which I doubt it will, if the UK pushes back against Chinese investment, if the Americans, as they will, push back against it, I would remind you of the word monopsonist. China is the only buyer in town. If you don't sell to them, there's no one coming to buy from you instead of them. Because let's not forget the developed world has run out of money fiscally. Mm -hmm. The emerging world gets its money from China. Factually. Yeah. So if I, if I'm not, I'm not a mouthpiece for for Beijing. I'm simply a very, very good macroeconomist and a very good microeconomist. And I'm a realist. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, do you say, from your perspective, is there much consensus on the way that you see the things, and compared to your colleagues, perhaps investment colleagues in America and in Europe, and even perhaps in China or in 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 Asia, the perspective that you hold, do you think it comes from the fact that you don't come from an American perspective? You're you're living in the UK, which is sort of a go between between Europe. And the U.S. and you and your mentality is built by the climate, political climate in the U.K. as opposed to if you're an American investor, with with these sentiments played to you there. I'm colorblind. I'm nation blind. My only dogma is economics. Maybe for the for the purpose of this answer, let me tell you. I, I at 17, I went to the London School of Economics. I found that I was lucky enough that I began a degree that I fell in love with. I did my master's there. I did my PhD there. I wrote papers there. I lectured and taught around the, around the world as in, uh, in the UK and beyond. I've done nothing other than economics mm-hmm. since I was 17. I'm 55 years old now. Okay. I can't play golf. I can't play chess. I can't play the piano or play the cello. This is what I do. So I don't let anyone tell me what to think about economics i can create my views through first principle yeah not because i live in the uk it's because i understand economics i'm a realist the there are there are things unfolding in the world that are wonderfully fascinating Mm -hmm. we're talking about china and the us there's a, there's a place called Hong Kong, 11 million people. It's a self-administered region of China, and yet it has the US dollar as its peg. Mm-hmm. 
it's been pegged to the US dollar for, for all my career and, and before, in fact. That peg cannot last because as the Chinese currency continues to strengthen against the US dollar, then Hong Kong will find itself mispriced. It will become very cheap for, for Chinese mainland buyers. It will become cheap for its real estate. It will become cheap for its malls and shopping centers. At some point, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority will have to break the peg with the US dollar. That will be a momentous event. Now, you might think, do we have a precedent for that? We do, because the Hong, the Hong Kong dollar is pegged to the US dollar, having been pegged to the UK pound. Yeah. So currencies have their moment of glory. Yeah. And it just happened, it happens that we are seeing the last hurrah of the US dollar as the, as the monopoly global currency mm-hmm. for commodity pricing, for global savings. The fact that Bitcoin is rising yeah. has as much to do with the fact that it's priced against, in dollars as it having any virtue. Bitcoin has no virtue. It, the problem is that the euro, the yen, the dollar have no lovers. In the case of the yen, the dollar, and the euro, it's an ugly contest. Yeah. Who's the least yeah. ugly? The good news is that you've got this new raft of currencies. As I mentioned, the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar, the Chinese currency, the RMB, they're going to come increasingly into the fore as stores of wealth. And as they do, if you're Australian or Canadian or Chinese, as your currency lifts, so will your household wealth. So will your business wealth. Mm-hmm. And your ability to buy the rest of the world increases. And as the dollar goes down, American purchasing power goes down. These, these, these are not theoretical predictions. These are factual events. Factual, yeah. factual realities that you see happening on a day-to-day basis. Naturally, Sorry? these are factual things that you see happening on a day-to-day basis. So you, there's no, there's no, there's no need to frame it in any way because you can see the numbers, you can see things happening you for can, yourself you and building the pain off the back of these fundamentals. You can see if you're looking for it. Too many young men and women, and I keep saying young men and women because I, anyone who's in their twenties or thirties hasn't got the experience yet. They're so, so busy looking at um, cryptocurrencies. Yeah, let's talk about that. And looking at looking looking at indices and technicals, an index, the S and P one hundred, the Dow Jones, the the CAC, the DAX, the FTSE, the Nikkei, they're not abstract. They they represent a collection of companies. I often ask students. I say to them, tell tell me, um, just give me ten names in the S and P one hundred. Give me ten names in the Nikkei. Give me ten names in the in the IBX or the IEX or the AEX. And they've got no idea. Yeah. I said to them, uh, give me some currencies in the Eurozone. And they go, Poland, Ukraine. These should be fundamental knowledge points. I say, what is the currency of Brazil compared to Argentina? What are the interest rates? No idea. What is the currency of South Korea versus Taiwan? No idea. Which currencies are tied to the dollar as pegs? No idea. Yeah. Surely these are, these are these are fundamental pieces of knowledge that you can't come into finance not knowing. Yeah. Because you can't there, there isn't there isn't a single asset class equities, bonds, property which don't involve currencies. So if you haven't got an overarching knowledge of currencies, how can you possibly be confident in your bond or equity or or property uh, portfolio construction? Yeah. Yeah. Now if I seem if I seem annoyed and angry. 
it's because it doesn't take a great deal of effort to learn the answers to all those questions. Naturally. It doesn't. And yet, I'm told when I, when I suggest that they should understand these things, they say, is it relevant? <laughs> what a ridiculous answer. Is it relevant? Of course it's relevant. Profoundly relevant. Yeah, of course, of course. Course. So, so then, would you, do you get nervous, or um, yeah, I think nervous would be the the right word for younger investors who have access to the markets through zero commission trading, and they simply put their 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 money on a company which is the most well known that the media is shouting most about. They 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 they, they put whatever investments or savings or whatever in that, and they just ride the wave hoping for it to go up without understanding the fundamentals. Using obviously GameStop and the rise of Tesla over the last year as examples, without understanding the fundamentals at all. This is being compounded globally with with more market participants, at least retail market participants from all over the world, which are, which is seeing a rise in their 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 income through furlough schemes or through them just working themselves. And they're just putting their money into these stocks without understanding, which is affecting the markets in many different ways. What would you, I mean, naturally you, you, you'd say to them, understand the fundamentals first, but is this having at all any structural impact on the, on market, on market dynamics? And do you see them having a bigger impact as more retail investors come into the fold? I have to basically remind you that I've been doing this for 30 years commercially. So I've seen, I've, I've seen this horse race before. In the 1990s, you had, the TMT boom, the telecom media technology boom. So very much the same phenomenon, momentum-driven, meteoric rising of, of, of blue sky earnings. Companies had no earnings, but we were told by investment banks, the investment banks were parading these companies saying they may not have earnings today or tomorrow or next year, mm. but when they do have earnings, they'll be blue sky. Yeah. I, can't, I can't give you a number because it'll be so far in the, in the, uh, in the orbit. As we know, 2000 happened and you had a crash. Now, if everyone in finance was old enough to remember that and working, then there wouldn't be another. The problem is so many investors are so young that they were- They weren't around to experience this. Yeah, yeah, they weren't around. And and their view is, is don't use the past because it's the paradigm shift. This is the new normal. Yeah. Things are different this time. Yeah. And guess what? Back in the 1990s when I was I was 20, I was in my um in my early in my late twenties, and I said to the people who were more experienced, who who were warning me about the the spectacular rise of the e-commerce stocks, BATMs and Marconi and so on. Mm-hmm. I said, but it's different this time. You need to be burnt. You need to have get, carry the scars. Yeah, and and there'll be scars from this episode. Sure. And there'll be there'll be survivors, but there'll be far more corpses. Yeah. Figuratively, of course, not literally. Yeah. Um, but you need this. You, you need these episodes continue. It's a it's look. It's a gold rush phenomenon. There's a. I, I often when I'm asked to recommend readings for students, I say there's one book you should read, mm-hmm. which is by a guy called Charles McKay. And it's the title is extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds yeah and it chronicles bubbles now what makes this book so extraordinary is it was published in 1841 and it's this thick yeah okay so in 1841 someone was writing about 
the history of bubbles. Sure. Since then, we've had a book this big added to it. This is, we, we are human and we're susceptible. The, the job of professionals is to basically protect their clients and preserve their, their capital, yeah. not to be drawn into these fads. When you're not making money when everyone else is, you're accused of being uh, a, a dinosaur. Yeah. When you've preserved your capital, as everyone has basically blown those up, you have the last laugh. Yeah. Do you think there's any justification to say that maybe this time it is slightly different in terms of the rise of? Because your your views on Bitcoin have been have been have been, have been mentioned in the past, whether it be on the media or whether it be writings. I, I'm guessing also, but I've definitely seen you speak about this before. Is there any fundamental way in which you can say that the concept of Bitcoin can be useful or? is of value because as a store of value it's only valuable from many people's perspective if you believe you can sell it to someone else for a higher price there's no fundamental it, it's not a it's not a it doesn't produce anything it's a, it's a non-productive asset not, uh, uh, um, essentially I, I but then you do just uh, but, but you, you do see some very reputable uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of billionaires especially in america who promote the virtues of bitcoin naturally blockchain has has its own fundamental uh, uses but fundamentally bitcoin as not only a store of value, but as 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 a maybe not a replacement to the dollar, but you're, it will play some sort of role in the world of currencies not, in the future. You're not giving me a question. You're giving me an answer, framed in a question. There is nothing fundamental about Bitcoin. It will go. It will. It will one day be in a book about bubbles, the way that Charles McKay chronicled in 1841. Mm -hmm. I don't don't doubt that. It's factual. There is no way you can. It's a bit like you mentioned blockchain. Blockchain is not Bitcoin is not blockchain. No, definitely not. No one in the same way no one owns the internet. If I have a website, that gives me no ownership of the web, of the internet. Yeah. I use the internet effectively for my website, but I, I have no vested ownership. Mm -hmm. And similarly, if I own Bitcoin, I don't own the blockchain that creates Bitcoin. Naturally, if you yeah. overlay onto that the fact that we are, but Bitcoin is now in the crosshairs of the ESG community because it's not particularly uh, climate friendly. Because the more Bitcoin you produce, the more energy you consume, and the more gigawatts you need. Yeah. So finally, we're starting to see the conflict between the modernists who claim Bitcoin is fantastic, the modernists who want to see greater ESG in conflict. Yeah. It's a car crash. And I look. I, I'm not going to basically. I, uh, I, I, some of you, some, some of the listeners may remember that, uh, along with a professor of economics at the LSE, we wrote a, a very short letter to the FT that we valued Bitcoin back in 2016, 17, at about 200 bucks. Okay. Now, I would not revise that. Oscar Wilde once said famously in uh, in the picture of Dorian Gray, I think it was, yeah. confusing the value and the price of something. Yeah. I can't def I can't challenge the price of Bitcoin, but I can challenge what its value is. Yeah. And its value is dramatically lower mm -hmm. than its price. And gravity will work. Don't ask me when, because I can't answer that question. Mm-hmm. It will happen. Yeah. 
Do you and see that? Guys, it will yeah. basically, sadly, bring down many, many small investors who have been sucked in by snake oil salesmen, by boiler room salesmen. This is the Wolf of Wall Street is a terrible indictment of finance. I've seen young men and women watching the Wolf of Wall Street and applauding it. It's terrible. Mm. Boiler rooms and snake oil and pressure selling is not what we need because the victim is the small town investor, mm -hmm. the dentist, a doctor, the architect, the hardworking yeah. nurse, teacher, yeah. Yeah. who can't afford to lose $40,000 of their savings on Tesla or Bitcoin oh, or Ethereum yeah. or GameStop. Yeah. And that will happen. And the big guys, the brokers, walk away with that money. It should be criminal. But then the role, the role of regulators in this must be critical in making sure that they see from your perspective what Bitcoin really is and stamp it out in your perspective as fast as possible. Naturally, regulators move, move quite slowly in this. What role do what, how, if, if, if you were the head of, of the FCA, what, what would you do in, 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 in regulating this more so than what they've done already? The problem is that Bitcoin falls between regulatory environments. No regulator wants to claim ownership over their regulation. They're saying, that's not my problem. <laughs> it's been allowed, it's been, it's been allowed, it's sort of, and it's been allowed to therefore grow yeah. almost into a regulatory uh, vacuum. Yeah. Because nobody wants to be the, the red flagger. Look, re regulators, sadly, indeed, uh, rating agencies as well, have been missing at the uh, at the front many many times. Mm -hmm. They hide, and you can ask me why they hide, and I'll yeah. give you candid answers. But they're not yeah. there, yeah. and they're missing um, at the most important point here. But to repeat, this is nothing new. Yeah, the names are different: Bitcoin and Tesla yeah. and GameStop. Yeah, but you could go back to the yeah in, in uh, over the over the years certainly in my career and yeah. i could give you as many names yeah i, I saw enron global crossing um okay true bulbs back the in the US, data now yeah to many, in, many in, different the, in the late 1990s you had all this sort of uh blue sky stuff mm -hmm. Acc accounting fraud is sadly those the, look at wirecard in yeah. germany as i mentioned earlier on yeah uh, enron you know, back in the day as well yeah all of them well, and it's uh, Tyco. Yeah. Um, you know, the, 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 I can't speak for other people, mm -hmm. but if it's between the market consensus and the economics that I, I, I know, I'll always back the economics. Yeah. I, I, I'm not in this industry to be liked. I, I will have arguments with other market professionals. And tell them I don't trust them, and they'll be offended. I don't care; it's not my problem. That's a good approach to take. The last point I'm going to mention about this, and then and then we'll we'll move on to we'll move on to the eurozone because that, that's an area that we have to cover too. Um, in terms in terms of in terms of thinking about things like Bitcoin. 
naturally there's a big hype towards it because it's a new it's 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 shiny it's new it's technological regulators aren't doing the best they can in making sure that they stamp it out because no one wants to have that big of a problem on especially it's it's going to be a big pr thing as well seeing the big regulators aren't allowing change to happen and they're thinking about these things too um if you are an investor who is who may be younger who may be thinking about investing their money into this what do you say then to the big banks who have already invested in Bitcoin when they see big names putting their money, their money behind Bitcoin? And to what you're saying, how can they shape their opinions when they're seeing, you know, your colleagues in some cases in, 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 in these institutions doing... Do, Give me name, name them, name them. So first of all, you, you asked, the question that you began was about the Eurozone. Yeah. And then, but you can't help yourself. You're fixated with Bitcoin. Exactly. It, it has already taken up too much of our time. It's not shiny. If you want shiny, buy gold. Gold has been around since <laughs> prehistory, yes? Yes, 100%. Uh, at least it has a reputation tradition. Okay, I, I can't wear a Bitcoin around my neck. I can wear gold. I can melt it. I can yeah. use it for tax evasion. Yeah. Okay. The, the idea that somehow, if, you, if you're telling me that Bitcoin will become institutionalized, then quite frankly, you risk being institutionalized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure, for sure. That, 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 that's a good point to mention. So moving to the last point of our conversation, meaning the Eurozone, when you see what's happening right now, especially after after Brexit, g- give me your your assessment of of where the Eurozone is going, especially given the fractious nature of what Brexit has done to Europe, I guess, in general, also with the extension of new... Mer- this is a lot to put into one question, but you have the phenomenon of Brexit. You also have the phenomenon of even Balkan nations who want to join the EU. Um, what is your, your, your assessment of how Eurozone leaders are coping with such changes in, 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 in the world? And what do you think they can do better in, in maintaining some sort of security and stability for the people who live in these areas so that they are more prosperous today than they were yesterday? Or more process tomorrow as they, as they are today. Well, let's 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 because you you there's a number of there's many questions there. Yes, yeah, yeah. The, the, Euro, the European Union the European Union has 27 members. There are a number of accession states that want to come in. You mentioned the Balkan states. They won't join. They can't join because the eurozone the eurozone within the European Union has 19 countries, and of those 19 countries, Spain. Portugal, Italy, and Greece have been fundamentally hurt by COVID in a way that made a bad situation worse. Mm-hmm. So the, the EU capital that exists will have to be focused on repairing the damage caused to the southern European Eurozone nations. Mm-hmm. There isn't going to be enough money to yeah. do that and also to, to fund in the way that you saw the funding of Romania, Bulgaria, and Poland yeah. in the enlargement phases of 2004 and 2008. Mm-hmm. So... No more arrivals to the European Union. No one's leaving the Eurozone. Ever? Or until, until they have enough money to do so? What you're going to see going forward is no one, can, no one can afford to leave the Eurozone. No one can. If you ask me uh, why that's the case, I'll say, well, give me a name of a, of a nation that can leave the Eurozone without there being damaged internally. I mean, if you... If you Suggest Greece could never leave the Eurozone no. because it, if it went back to a drachma, it would become Zimbabwe. The Northern European states, if they had their own 
currency essentially would see their currency even stronger against something it would be effectively a, a case of an appreciation they couldn't afford mm-hmm. in terms of the european union itself we're seeing as i mentioned the likes of hungary mm-hmm. and poland mm-hmm. and finland increasingly returning parties that are less federalist than the ones they replaced more nationalist so the european union will survive in a much less federalist way than it currently is because it's failed mm-hmm. and i i'm not saying that as a brexiteer the reason i'm a brexiteer isn't because i'm some sort of narrow-minded little little englander my 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 family are greek and greek cypriot yeah the reason, I the reason I was a Brexiteer was I understand economics. Mm-hmm. And the net present discounted value from the UK staying in the European Union was less than the net present discounted value of it leaving. I believed that back in 2016, and I believe it even more in 2021. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem. This is Putting that aside, here is the fundamental problem for the Eurozone. It's currency. Mm-hmm. It's currency will go down against the pound, which it needs. The problem with the euro, it's currently 121 against the dollar. It will move to 130. The euro will move stronger and stronger and stronger, ever less competitively against the dollar and the yen, because China will begin to rebalance. Its China has a currency management system, which is multinational. It no longer manages against the, the dollar strictly. It manages against 16 other currencies, of which the euro is the second, big, second biggest weighting. So as the, the Chinese push their currency up against the dollar, they're going to push more and more of their dollars into euros, pushing the euro. What happens to Germany and Holland? What happens to Belgium and the industrial mercantilists in the north? as they become less competitive. Mm-hmm. What happens to Sweden, which has its own currency, and Denmark? I wouldn't be surprised if in between now and the end of the year, Turkey devalues its currency. So Turkey, so not only does the Eurozone face a devaluation, a competitive appreciation against the dollar, the euro becomes even less competitive against Turkey, which means the Southern Europeans who compete with Turkey for tourism and for basic foodstuffs are hit. Mm-hmm. The Eurozone then gets caught in a vice where the euro is getting stronger and stronger. It's the dollar and the Turkish lira, the Egyptian pound. The only respite the euro gets is going down against the pound. Now, these are simple macroeconomic FX forecasts and predictions mm-hmm. based on covered rate parity, interest differentials, inflation differentials. I don't meet many students who even care about these things. And yet you can't have a portfolio of stocks or bonds or properties without knowing these things without knowing that yeah. these will be impacted by these movements in currencies yeah. and yet it's almost dismissed do you see yourself Sav, in the future maybe wanting to work in policy where you shape the policies of these regions maybe even looking into, into politics into the future where you can have some primary impact into into the macro finance of uh, of the world or of a specific country or, or do you do you, you see yourself playing in this field as a as a, as a as a chief economist for the rest of your time do I, do I, do I, 
do I strike you as a diplomat? Well, you could be a very cutthroat one, but I think you could be a good one. Why not? No, no, you're very, you're very kind. No, no, the, the, the problem is, I, I have enormous respect for Mario Draghi. I think he controlled the ECB at a very difficult time. Uh, Italy is lucky to have him as prime minister. I have no respect for his, his uh, successor. I think the guard is a diplomat, a technocrat. She's a, so the ECB is in the hands of someone who is unfit for, for its demanding purpose. Mm-hmm. In the US, Janet Yellen left the FOMC. She's now uh, Treasury Secretary. Yeah. I, think, I think Powell has an impossible job because the US is now printing dollars. I think the UK is very lucky. It's got a good Bank of England, got a very good Chancellor. But most importantly, to repeat, now I, my job isn't to fashion policy. I couldn't. I wouldn't want to do it. My job is to is to is to have a a panoramic view of the world, mm-hmm. taking in every geography, north and south, east and west, and looking at it purely economically, with no subjective or no filter. Mm-hmm. And to repeat a point that we opened with. The only game in town is China. And it has it's not malevolent. Its ambitions are purely to keep its middle class and its working class pacified, getting wealthier and wealthier, mm-hmm. consuming more and more. So that the, the Chinese Communist Party can survive as long as it can. Mm-hmm. And as we wrap this up, Sav. As we as as uh, we wrap this up, any what would be your final thoughts? If you because this podcast goes out to to chief investment officers, it goes out to economists, it goes out to policymakers, it goes out to even you know concerned citizens. That's the kind of demographic that we have here. From your thirty years of experience in the industry, what would be some of the takeaways that you would wish those in the industry would think about more so or have a, a, a sharper perspective on? What would be the last words that you would say to them so that they have a, perspe- have, a, have a much more perhaps realistic or fundamental perspective on the world and don't get attached onto the headlines and onto uh, narratives that other players who are not in the investment world try to feed them? Well, I'd, I'd say A&E. So what do I mean by always bear in mind the A and the E. The A is agenda. Mm-hmm. Is the person speaking to you agenda biased? Mm-hmm. And the E is, does a person who's talking to you have the education and the experience mm-hmm. to be listened to? Because a great many of the, the talking heads that you hear on the news, on the screens, or read in the newspapers have agenda biases. They, they are, they, they'll tell you something that they want you to believe because it serves their self-interest. Yeah. And there are other groups, often the same group, but there are other groups, not, they're not mutually exclusive, who speak from a purely uninformed position. Purely uninformed. Mm-hmm. They have neither the education or the experience. But what we do have is the confidence. Okay. The, so that, that would be my takeaway. Just always be sceptical mm-hmm. of received wisdom. And don't be frightened about being non-consensual. Because yeah, kind of circles back to the first point. Yeah, circles back to the first point. I'm lucky enough. I, the, 
the consensus is non-rewarding. Mm-hmm. There's no alpha there. The alpha exists knowing that the consensus is wrong and having the ability to invest against it with yeah. some hedging, yeah. with some, some option uh, investment to avoid being, being sort of made liquid or insolvent, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. waiting for, for you to be, to be proven correct. Yeah, wonderful. And if people want to get in, the last question, if people want to get into contact with you, Sav, are you open to, 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 to contact? I mean, you're on LinkedIn. Have you got a Twitter account? What's the best way for people to get in contact with you if they want to hear more from you? Look, look, look um, I, I, I don't do social media. I, LinkedIn is my way of effectively, my, my LinkedIn posts are purely economic. Mm-hmm. There's no emotion, simply substance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm always available. I, I, I've never walked away from a an argument, a confrontation, a fight. But one thing I'd say that that you don't want to come, you don't want to fight with me about economics. Because <laughs> uh, sending warning shots to anyone who wants to. Only one, only one person walks out of that ring standing up. Good to know. <laughs> Good to know. Wonderful. So, Savas, thank you so much for your time today. This is going to go out soon, and. Um, Thank you also for everyone listening and catch us on the next episode coming out soon. Thank you so much and bye-bye.